I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Brock Purdy is the perfect NFL quarterback, at least when it comes to wins and losses. That's what we learned last night. Brock Purdy cannot be beaten. The 49ers continue to roll, stomped all over the New York Giants um, on a, you know, the standard Thursday night football kind of fair. Brad Spielberger back in the building with us today to talk through uh, Thursday night as well as some uh, interesting schematic developments this season. And then later on, we'll have Vic Troja, our medical expert, talking about the big injuries of the week. Nick Chubb, his prognosis, as well as Joe Burrow and a very interesting uh, debate or dilemma that the Cincinnati Bengals face heading into this week. How's it going, Brad? Oh, great. How you doing? Not bad. Not bad at all. Um I find the Brock Purdy thing increasingly fascinating because he's now 8-0 as a starter. Um, he, they, they can't lose with him. The offense rolls. No Brandon Ayuk, doesn't matter. Spread it around to a bunch of other people. His numbers are insane, and yet I still don't think we have any idea if he's even good. Yeah, I know. I saw you put that out and obviously had some backlash, and I <laughs> tweeted last night that his turnover-worthy play of regression is going to come at some point, although we, I think I've been saying that for right. about six weeks, and he started for eight of them. Not to take away from him, like I, I do think his willingness to push the ball downfield probably is an upgrade over some 49ers quarterbacks of the past. But, I mean, there's just there's hilarious stats everywhere you look. I was inspired last night when Debo Samuel had the third and 15 screen pass go for 30 yards. Uh, you know, which team, since Brock Purdy, Purdy took over, which team leads the NFL in yards after the catch per reception uh, when they are in third and seven plus? And a very unsurprising answer. It is the 49ers at about seven yards. And then quickly, I thought, okay, well, is this because of low average depth of target? Is that why the yards after the catch are so high? They're not even bottom 10 in average depth yeah. of target on those throws. Um, I mean, Kyle Shanahan is a master, and, and I want to pose the question uh, that our old buddy Austin Gale tweeted out a little bit ago uh, about you know a conversation between quarterbacks and Kyle Shanahan. He said, the only quarterbacks I'd choose over simply having Kyle Shanahan as my head coach slash play caller is Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, Trevor Lawrence. Do you agree? Like, is the list any longer than that? I mean, the list might be shorter than that, honestly. <laughs> like, obviously, Patrick Mahomes is on that list. I mean, Josh Allen just showed his capacity to implode randomly against the Jets when all he needs to do is to, you know, keep the ships straight and level. I don't know that Dak Prescott would be on the list. I I think the list might be shorter than that. I mean, the numbers last night are absolutely insane. Like, Brock Purdy made some good throws. Let's put that out first and foremost, right? He had two big-time throws, which might have been his first two of the year. Uh, yeah, they were. So two big-time throws, that's something he doesn't always do. So let's give him credit for that. But people are going to lose their minds because he got a passing grade of 59 because by the time the game finishes, we forget the fact that on the first drive, he spent the entire drive almost intent on trying to throw an interception. Debo and George Kittle had to make pass breakups as intended receivers on that first drive to save him from creating an interception from wayward throws. And then when you look at just sort of how the game was, his average depth of target in the game was 5.3 yards deep. Like, we were hammering Justin Herbert and the Chargers last year for having an average depth of target of 6-point-something, and his was 5.3. Uh, what was it, 70% of the yards were after the catch from his receivers? It was 2.28-second average time to throw is incredibly fast. Like, it's this sort of perfect storm of Shanahan offense. And then right at the end, Brock Purdy makes a couple of nice throws. It's like, I right, see, Purdy's great. You know, 30 points, 300 yards, everything's good. Brock Purdy's the guy. That's like, I mean, I agree with you that he does add value to this offense. It's not like he's just a passenger. I think that's what makes the discussion kind of interesting. But the degree to which he's propped up first before he adds the value is staggering. 
Yeah, like you said, we can highlight, look, the touchdown throw to Debo Samuel, nice ball. I thought the, the throw it on the left sideline to George Kittle layered over a defender. It just missed. I think it was a linebacker that was reaching to try and you know break it up. It was a great throw. And the throw to Ronnie Bell, the touchdown, you know, the, the first one, he was you know retreating from pressure. You also should mention he got blitzed on about 85% of dropbacks 85%. last night. Wink Martindale was just teeing off on him. And so he obviously had to navigate that as well. But like you mentioned, he had two, maybe three turnover-worthy throws on the first drive of the game. I mean, George Kittle did the seatbelt celebration mm -hmm. after a beautiful pass breakup. That, that was hilarious. May have been the highlight of the game because uh, it kind of got a little out of hand after that. But, but yeah, I, I mean, we're not trying to just t totally denigrate him and take away from him. The 59 grade, I think, is borderline generous. Uh, like, he really <laughs> did not you know, do all that great in that game. I mean, Kyle Shanahan said it himself in his post-game presser. He missed a bunch of things. He could have been better. Kittle kind of did, too, when he came on set to talk with the you know, the, the TNF post-game crew. So, yeah, like I, I do think at the end of the day, like does Garoppolo make some of those outside-the-numbers throws? Does he navigate pressure as well? Maybe not. There is positive there, but yeah. it's just it's incredible what Kyle Shanahan is able to do. Like you said, no Brandon Ayuk, who was, I think, our second-highest-graded receiver in the NFL through two weeks, and it just simply did not matter. Yeah, which was the same. I mean, remember week one, like his right tackle is getting annihilated by TJ Watt, and it didn't matter. Like, that's this is the amazing thing with this offense right now is that you can – you can take absolute body blows to really significant parts of it, and it changes nothing. Like Brandon Ayuk being out, all it meant is that George Kittle, Debo Samuel, and Christian McCaffrey were going to have great days. And I, I agree. Like this was, this was not a particularly good game by Brock Purdy, like relative to his standards. Forget how good he is in overall terms. This wasn't even a good Brock Purdy game, um, but the numbers were especially good. So we get this weird dynamic. I got to say, like. You, you say, you know, you got some blowback from that tweet. That was a classic example of, I'm going to tweet this out. I suspect there will be blowback, but I'm going to bed, so I'm not going to see it. So it was, a, it was a perfect, like, pump and dump tweet of let's drop it out there and, and bounce because I'm not reading this. This is going to get ugly. Um, the other stat that was hilarious, the blitzing 85% of the stats, our time stat was phenomenal. I mean, we know Wink Martindale wants to be the most blitz-heavy defensive coach, defensive team in the NFL anyway. He, he generally is. He was like third heading into this week, I think, and was like, oh, hell no. That's not happening. We're dialing it way up. And also, I wonder if Brian Dayball getting into it with the officials, you know, losing his mind and being distracted was what enabled. Like, I, I kind of feel like Wink Martindale would blitz 90% of the time every game if you let him. But most of the time, the, the head coach probably is like, dude, dial it the hell back. You're going too far. This time, Dayball's over there yelling at officials and Wink's like, blitz, blitz, blitz some more. Quick, before he sees, send it again. Um, so I think that helped. The other stat that was hilarious was NGS had a stat on Brock Purdy's touchdown, 27-yard touchdown. 27 yards, the, the Pythagorean, you know, distance was like 44 yards because he was on the left hash throwing to the right corner of the end zone. Apparently, 44 yards is the single longest pass of Brock Birdie's NFL career so far, which is wild. 44 yards is the longest throw that he's had in the NFL. The average is like 260 and two touchdowns a game with zero interceptions. So it, it is a pretty wild stat. And that throw, I mean, look, it was a perfect back shoulder ball. I think Debo Samuel is going to win that one-on-one -on -one with whichever healthy corner was out there on him at that point in the game. All three Giants corners were injured at some point during that contest. But real quick, kind of a twist, um, you know, go look at the other side of the ball because we could talk about the Niners the entire show. thought it was an interesting tweet that came out last night from Josina Anderson. Um, right before the game started, she tweeted out that, uh, according to her sources in in San Francisco, they were quote unquote preparing for Brian Dable to be the one calling plays, and then effectively alluded to mm. in the first half against Arizona, it was Mike Kafka, and then Dable took over in the second half, where they of course, you know, uh, scored a uh, scored on every single possession they had, went five for five. Obviously, they had 150 yards last night, their lowest in a decade. We didn't see anything, but. I don't know. Uh, do you have any you know kind of thoughts on that or or thoughts on what Dable you know maybe brings to the table differently? Is that going to continue? Do you, did you notice anything different in, in what they were doing uh, or you know maybe just kind of a you know interesting tweet to to monitor going forward? Well, first of all, he denied it, didn't he? Like he was asked straight up know. after the game after the, the the game where where he apparently took over play calling. They because 
I forget who it was. Damn it. I think it was Pat Leonard. Um, asked him straight up because he noticed him, like, you know, paying, paying a lot more attention to the play card uh, and said, you know, did, is, did you take over play calling? And he was like, nope, didn't happen. So it sounds like it did. <laughs> you just lied about it. It's one of those those mysteries every single week that we always kind of with every team where it's like, oh well, this guy's looking at a big play sheet. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I can hold a laminated piece of paper in front of me on a sideline as well. Uh, you know, we all can do that, and we can talk into a headset. I can be telling limericks. You know, it doesn't really change what's actually happening. But you know, not to take away from Kafka, I think he obviously is a good offensive mind. I mean, potentially a head coach in the in the future. Just found that interesting. I mean, yeah, they couldn't do anything, but uh, you know, on that side of the ball again. Now, I mean, Daniel Jones. Look, was he perfect? No. First of all. Kirk Herbstreet, love the guy. Him blaming Darren Waller on that first throw right. where it was maybe two feet behind him and maybe two feet too high. It was like, come on, that was not Darren Waller's fault. But at the same time, Daniel Jones under a historically high pressure rate through yeah. two weeks. Like you just tweeted out, like it's you can't even have competent quarterback play when you're under pressure on basically half of your dropbacks in a game. No Andrew Thomas, a couple other injuries throughout the game. They had four offensive linemen with a pass block grade below 30. Uh, it, it was It was a bloodbath. Yeah, Steve uh, ran the numbers. It was the third worst team pass blocking grade we've given. I forget what his period of time was, but over an extended period of time uh, since 2020. So it's the third worst individual game performance from a pass blocking unit since 2020 um, that we've seen in a game. It was catastrophic. And like you say... He's been under pressure 47% of the time through three games. Uh, 40% is bad. 45 is generally anything above that. It's not going to work. You know, the quarterback, the offense, it isn't going to function at 45% of the time. And through three games, Daniel Jones has been at 47%. And that doesn't mean that he's played well when he hasn't been under pressure. Like his grade last night, not under pressure, was 55. But it, there's a knock-on effect, right? When you're under pressure half the time effectively your your brain doesn't switch off on the one play where it, like you're not under pressure right the the every you're essentially conditioned at that point to expect it and that's when you start you know seeing ghosts or expect like anticipating the pressure that never comes and it, it has that knock-on effect even on plays where you're actually not under pressure so look I don't think Daniel Jones has played particularly well I also don't think he's had any real chance to survive now one thing Brian Dayball taking over play calling can do if that's what's happening is just with his weight of experience, I think he has a better idea of how to try and mitigate some of those problems, right? Like here's here's what we need to do when the offensive line is just getting absolutely wrecked. Like here's what the play call sheet now looks like. We're getting rid of this, 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 and this because it's not viable. Like that's straight out of the window. So I think he gives you the best chance to try and offset the problems, but – he doesn't fix the problems, which is the Giants' biggest issue. And I think the, the biggest tell for me was they even highlighted it at halftime. They were talking about how last week against Arizona, they come out, I think it was one of the first plays of the entire first half. They throw that bomb to Jalen Hyatt, yeah. and it resets the entire game. You can't wait for Jalen Hyatt to run downfield last night. Like that's not again, like you said, that's not in the playbook. He's an awesome player. He's not gonna Daniel Jones is not gonna have the time. And I do agree, like you said. I think we underestimate if a guy's getting hit 80% of the time and getting you know pressured half the time, he's going to have an internal clock that's extremely sped up, even if he is clean on some of those dropbacks. Last thing I'll say is to, you know, just to go to RB value and all of that. Look, this is a game where not having Saquon Barkley as an outlet to just give it to him, let him make guys miss in space and run after the catch. Like Gary Brightwell actually had a couple of those on that yeah. touchdown drive they finally had in, uh, in the third quarter. I think he had, you know, one on, down the left sideline for about 20 yards. But like that is ignoring running, ignoring offensive line play, helping run, yada, yada, yada. You know, that's the check down outlet is one of the biggest pieces of value there. And he just didn't have that either. It was it, everything was about as bad as it could have been for Daniel Jones. I was watching using the, you know, the Amazon, um, whatever they call it, the prime feed where you get the kind of all 22 view and the, the overlay graphics and all that kind of stuff. There was a play. I forget when it was, but I feel like it was in a similar time, start of the second half to that um, bomb to Jalen Hyatt last week. Right. And. They had a formation where they had Jalen Hyatt in the slot on the left-hand side, and they had it matched up one-on-one -on -one with a safety the way the 49ers deployed to align it. Because I think it was only, 
I think it was 12 personnel or something like that. It wasn't 11. So they, they had a heavy-ish personnel package and had managed to, to manufacture Hyatt in the slot, and it was one-on-one with the safety playing off coverage. And from pre-snap, you're like, uh-oh, here it is. They're doing it again. Like, this is the bomb. This is what they've been waiting for. And he ran the go, and he was open, and Jones never had a chance to get to it. Like, he had to – pressure came from the right-hand side. He had to try and, you know, roll left, and at which point the bomb to the left is gone. There's no way he's going to be able to stop, pivot, turn his feet, get it out of the air again. And that was just like – that's the problems they're dealing with right now. Yes, a bomb to Jalen Hyatt might reset things and change the whole dynamic, but – he doesn't have the time to get that out, right? The 49ers pass rushers yesterday. Javon Hargrave, PFF pass rushing grade 92.3. Nick Bosa, pass rushing grade 91.5. Eric Armstead, pass rushing grade 91.3. Javon Kinlaw, like, you know, notable bust up until this season. Pass rushing grade of 81.8. I mean, at least four guys just almost wrecking the Giants' offensive line at will. I would say, you know, Daniel Jones has very little chance of getting things done within that system at the moment, and the Giants have very little chance of having success with the current dynamic as it is. Yeah, I know it's three games, but Javon Kinlaw does look like a different player. Uh, that'll be fun to monitor through the rest of the season. He really does look like that burst is back. The reason he you know, got taken top 15, you're kind of seeing why on tape. Uh, yeah, Daniel Bellinger, if I'm him going into a potential franchise tag, I would argue for the offensive line tag, I think. I, I would say, clearly I'm not a tight end. I, I, am, I am a right tackle with eligibility to catch the ball, but I never actually run routes. And I think he's a pretty good player, too. But, you know, matching up one-on-one with Nick Bosa, where you're outside of him, uh, is going to lead to sacks and borderline safeties pretty much every time. But that's the one thing I would say, now with a healthy Wandale Robinson back and Jalen Hyatt, if you have a game like this, throw them 10 screens. Like, I, you know, maybe that's one adjustment because they aren't just downfield threats. They, they also can be shifty with the ball in their hands. Like, but again, I mean, Fred Warner and Andre Greenlaw, Oren Burks had a great game. Like, there was nothing they could do yeah. at any level of the field last night. No, they were overmatched on both sides of the ball. And, you know, the game went pretty much as you would expect it to do. It's it just we saw it all play out. Um, September's been rough for the Giants, but it doesn't have to be rough for you. The most important task on your September checklist should be securing your financial, your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoy enjoying life unless you're the Giants. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all offline, all offline, all online, and on your schedule. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, Brad, um, one of the biggest kind of schematic trends in today's NFL has been this approach by defenses to adopt, you know, the Vic Fangio type of schemes and go to all those too high coverage shells and try and essentially take away the deep shot, the explosive play that have been so prevalent in the league for the last few years. Um, You've done some interesting work in terms of how offenses are trying to fight back and whether or not it's working. So we obviously know that the too high shell, uh, you know, defense is increasing more and more, which in theory means the middle of the field is open uh, and therefore you should attack that area. There's been plenty of data, plenty of research about how it is efficient to throw the ball over the middle. You know, one great article by former PFF intern Tage Seth kind of called it the the NFL's equivalent of the three-point shot and and things like that. But he also then highlighted in that article uh, how the efficiency of that play has been going down in recent years, despite the fact that you'd think intuitively because of two high shells, it would go up. And our data, you know, it's two weeks, sure, but our data reflects all of that again. So looking at just the window of 2018 to 2023 um, in the first two weeks of those seasons, again, some sample stuff, but nevertheless, um, the lowest league-wide passing grade between the numbers Uh, is last year and this year. The lowest big-time throw rate between the numbers is last year and this year. Right now, so far this season, 7.7 yards per attempt throwing between the numbers is the lowest of the last, you know, that sample by almost a half yard. Um, And there's the fewest first downs 
thrown between the numbers this year by 60, like a, a pretty massive number. That's about 500 on average for the prior years, 440 this year. So it's just, you know, it's really crazy to kind of figure out what is the counter to what defenses are doing. They're trying to prevent all the deep shots or taking away the explosives. And you would imagine throwing over the middle of the field is one way to accomplish a counter punch. And, and, and in fact, the opposite is true. Last thing I should mention, though, um, the highest rushing grade in the first two weeks uh, is this year. So, you know, running might be back. And this is despite Miami absolutely blowtorching the NFL in those middle of the field situations. Like Miami is skewing that positive and it's still low. That's how the league-wide trend is is headed at the moment. I think this is really interesting because, um, like you're right, like the Kyle Shanahan, the, the, all those coaches from that um, play caller series that Jordan Rodriguez did on The Athletic, you hear them all talk about it. there's no there's no like answer, right? All you can do is to attack one thing and then something else comes over to fix it and then it, that opens up another hole somewhere else and it's this constant chess battle where something is always open, you just got to find it. It's impossible to shut down everything. But the flip side of that means, you know, you can always stop what is currently the biggest thing attacking the NFL, right? Explosive passes are everywhere. Well, we can stop that, but it's going to open up some other things. Where I think this is really interesting is the obvious thing that it's opened up is that attacking the middle of the field thing. When you hear people a lot of the time talk about this idea of middle of the field open or close when it comes to safety alignment, right? Middle of the field closed being there is a safety in the middle of the field. You therefore don't attack that area. So the two high safeties, the split safeties, middle of the field open means you start attacking in the middle of the field. Teams are doing that. Like, that's the obvious counter to, oh, all these new two high shells, let's attack that area again. But it isn't having the success that they thought it was, that they thought it would. So for the first time in quite a while, like, defenses are actually winning. Defenses are on the front foot for a change in a way that hasn't happened for, God, like, when was the last time that was the case? The, the start of the Seattle cover three type of systems? Right. No, yeah, like you said, I mean, obviously every rule change the last decade has skewed towards more offense and, and, and passing and protecting quarterbacks and, you know, obviously, you know, protecting defenseless receivers, which, of course, is going to happen a lot of times over the middle. And even still, there's a struggle. I, one kind of hypothesis I think maybe plays into it here is, you know, the slot receiver, uh, you know, was obviously not a focal point of a lot of offenses. You'd always have your X's and, and you know, even your, your, your zebras and whatnot would, would focus on the outside. We see now guys like Devontae Adams and Justin Jefferson and the elite players, you know, come inside on 25, 30% of snaps. But I think defense is also now as a counter that, you know, your nickel corner is no longer just your third corner. I mean, even look at last night, um, Adoree Jackson, the best cornerback on the Giants by a comfortable margin, is their slot corner. Like, And that's just one team. But I think it's also the fact that we're respecting the number three receiver, meaning you know the guy third from the, from the sideline. We're respecting those slot guys more and more. There's also kind of the hybrid safety type players, your Anton Winfield, your Kyle Duggars. Like, there's just so many answers to, you know, if they're trying to attack that area, even while we're playing too high, we have, you know, more and more counters on defense. It's just, it's really interesting. It's just not working. Is is the second counter, you think, or the second attempt at countering this by offense is going to be a pivot back towards the run game? Like you said, the rushing grades are up. A large part of that is, I mean, that's another obvious counter to more safeties, right? More safeties in the back. The, the box is lighter. The defensive front is lighter. You run against that. But we're in this interesting world now where, um, you know, we've been pushing more and more towards pa the passing game for years. The, the, the league has been headed in that direction because, generally speaking, the passing game is more impactful, more efficient, more productive, et cetera, et cetera. So it's this fascinating um, balance now between generally the passing game is more effective and more productive, but we are being herded towards the run game because of what defenses are doing schematically. Like it's this defenses are inviting you effectively to do the less efficient thing. Will you take them up on that? Right. And I mentioned the grade, but also, you know, second most first downs on carries, you know, through the first two weeks. So not, not just the PFF grade there, but also some traditional stats. I, I do think so to a degree. I mean, I think, um, 
you know, like you have to do something to just, like you said, get more players in the box or force defenses to maybe play more base by going 12 personnel. But that's the thing too, though, is you look at uh, a lot of teams are just staying in nickel against 12 yeah. and it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the bills obviously went from dead last and 12 personnel last couple of years. They're now I think top five in the NFL with a lot of Dalton Kincaid and Dawson Knox. That's just, again, one team, but you watch their film teams aren't, aren't, uh, they're staying in nickel. Like they don't, they don't care. Um, you know what? What personnel the offense is showing? So I, I would imagine so. I think you are going to see more running. Um, it, you know, it, it's just there's so many kind of factors at play here too. I think interior defensive line play is better than interior offensive line play. You know, in, in a skewed range as well. So it's hard to run between the tackles, which obviously is where you would want to attack. It's just everywhere you look, every po- hole you try to poke, it, it's coming up defense. Yeah, and it's also because like. The NFL has moved away from the types of players that would exploit this the best. Like, teams can defend the run with nickel defense, with dime packages easily now because teams gone away from the kind of hulking, run-blocking, slash-running monsters that used to exist. Like, a nickel corner no longer has to try and bring down Brandon Jacobs in the open, in the open field. You know what I mean? Okay, Derrick Henry is still there, but, like, he's, he's one of one. Everybody else... Like, they don't have those guys. The the average run – I would actually be curious to see what the average sort of running back weight has been over a period of time. It feels like it has to have gone down pretty substantially because teams are relying on speed and explosion now. You, you don't have to deal with trying to tackle these 250-pound monsters. Even if you do, the guy trying to block you is no longer a 260-pound run-blocking specialist tight end. He's a move tight end that has to do that as part of his gig. Like, it's – Offenses are just not set up anymore to run the ball with power formation the way they used to be. Yeah, I think when Brandon Jacobs and Mike Tolbert retired, the average weight of running backs went down <laughs> by about 10, 15 pounds. So, uh, yeah, no, it's true. And the tight ends thing is one last kind of you know thought as well. Obviously, been some injuries there to some of the best tight ends in the NFL. And, you know, Brock Bowers is coming. There are some guys coming. But right. I-, I think that is also we're going to continue to see a push towards if you can find, you know, in theory, one of those special tight end type players you know, can you have that as a counter? But to the Bills example, like Dalton Kincaid is just being treated as a tall slot receiver. Like yeah. he's not even being treated as a tight end. So it's so hard to find, like you said, a guy who is 250, who can block, and then also can be an effective pass catcher. Um, it, it Yeah, it's just that that's probably one counter. I think those guys continuing to try to find that type of athlete, convincing more, you know, Kelvin Benjamin types to, to eat more Popeye's biscuits, uh, as Booger McFarland said, and and beef up the tight end level. Like, that that could be a counter, but they have to be good in both areas, and that's asking, you know, you're finding rare athletes when you're finding players that can do that. Yeah, it never seemed to be a difficult ask for to get him to do that. Um, so I think that's probably doable. Where are you in terms of, is this a good or a bad thing? Because the league seems to have been actively pushing for, offense rule you know all the rule changes points yards everything now the defenses have actually found a counter and are winning again for a bit is this good or bad i'm not gonna say it's bad you know i'm not a baseball guy but i think it's like borderline sad that they had to like ban the shift because they were just like our sport i'm gonna be mean now our sport was already the most boring sport on the planet earth and now it's even more boring so we're gonna literally ban players from standing in a different spot on the field like the nfl can't go that level Uh, that would just be kind of pathetic but um, you know, I think it's okay. I, I think you're just asking for more, you know, creativity and, and ingenuity and doing different things and finding new ways to win. I think we'll get there. But we already have, of course, seen, you know, Atlanta, Baltimore, New England to a degree, like pivoting back to a different style of offensive approach. You know, I think that's just going to have to continue. Um and just teams get more efficient in doing some of those things, finding those athletes. But, but yeah, right now defense is winning, uh, which is cool to see considering the cards have been stacked against them for so long. I feel like it's definitely a good thing. I mean, this game is so interest, it's so interesting, it's so intriguing because of that chess battle that we talked about, right? That, you know, offensive coaches are in a room knowing that they can't cover everything. They've got to find the thing that they can't cover. And defenses are in the other room knowing that they can't cover everything and that they have to try and take away what the most important thing is or force them to do something else. And every week, every game, every play, this is happening. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Stacking the cards too much in favor of one of those rooms I think is just bullshit. And they've been doing that for years. And I I mean, everyone thinks that that Rams-Chiefs game is like the greatest game ever played because, you know, whatever it was, 51-54 
Like it's like an arena league game. Arena league is not as good as the NFL, right? And part of that is because there's defense in the NFL. I think it's a good thing the defenses have found a way to fight back and, it, and that it's winning and it's actually having success at the moment. So I'm all for it. Um, I think that's, I think it's a positive development. I agree. No, I completely agree. And not just because I'm a Bears fan and, you know, defense wins championships <laughs> and, and all the you know lies I've been told over the years. But yeah, no, like I, I agree. It is. It, and it forces more of a chess match. If we just had, you know, there's like you said, you know, Arena League, Big 12 football in the NFL. You know, I think football purists would find that less interesting. Uh, I think we'd fall into that bucket. So I agree. We're, we're going to get a counter. We're going to get there. Uh, but I do think it's good for the NFL. They shouldn't be panicking over low scoring or low offense. You know, I know they just follow the numbers and follow viewership and all of those things. I get it. Uh, but I think it's pretty cool. All right, Brad, um, appreciate your uh, your attendance here for uh, our show on Friday. We're going to go and talk to our injury guy, Vic Troja, right now. Um, but uh, I'll see you next week. See you next week. We're keeping Vic busy, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Every week we're going to be talking injuries. Um, so let's go ahead and do that right now. All right. A big thank you to our medical expert, Vic Troja, for joining us in studio today on Friday, as he's going to do every week this week. Um, for what Tyler, I think, has suggested we rename the boo-boo breakdown. A little injury. <laughs> injury like note. Um, I want to start with Nick Chubb. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, definitely, I think, the most significant injury to happen this week. Trayvon Diggs going down in uh, practice during the week is another big one. But Chubb's injury, specifically, I want to ask, obviously, it's a devastating knee injury. If anybody's seen pictures or even just saw it live, it was pretty horrific. What I think is most um, interesting to get your perspective on, though, is he tore up that same knee in college really badly. Like, I don't know how many people know that given his NFL career. How much does that impact whatever prognosis, recovery, et cetera, he's going to have? Yeah, I mean, the good thing for Nick Chubb is that his first injury was like when he was 19 years old, right? right? So he's had a, a long time. He's 27. Um, and clearly it hasn't, you know, impacted him so far. I mean, he's he's been phenomenal in the NFL. So whatever that first one was, however bad, he's recovered well from it. All right. If anybody's ever seen him squat, you know yeah. that he's recovered with that knee injury. However, he also has a lot of things going against him. His age and the significance of this knee injury compared to the significance of the first one. I mean, his first one, multiple ligament. Um, this one, still multiple ligament. I think that the fact that it's first knee guaranteeing that there is scar tissue in there, there is some damage that's already been um, having to rehab through, right. and then coming back and doing that same thing again at a later age, at a very, very difficult injury to recover from already, I think it's a long haul for him. I do. Um, you know, I'm going to go a little bit medical here, but when you look at somebody who has three ligament tears, PCL, MCL, LCL, and a dislocation, all of that combined, we're looking at one to two surgeries just to... So they, yeah, just to fix that. There was a report there by um, Josina Anderson at some point that said they were, this was a two surgery thing, yeah. um, which from my perspective, I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad. Like if you're immediately saying this is not one, this is two surgeries right. to fix, that is just a red flag right off the gate. Right. What, why, why does that, what happens with two surgeries versus one? So it's not like they're gonna do a surgery in the morning and then do the second right. one in the night. So what's gonna happen is you're gonna do the surgery, he's gonna become ready to heal, start even maybe rehabbing a little bit depending on the timeline. But basically right when he goes to that next surgery, it's inflammation again, healing process again, and you're just restarting it. Um, the complexity of that knee injury is why it is going to be two, okay? Because they're going to go in there and there's a lot to be done. And I don't, I don't see him having like a great recovery if they just did it all in one. I think they're going to break it down into two surgeries and then start the rehab process once the second one is completed. Is it a, is it a time thing or they want specific elements to start healing before they start the second thing like why do they break it up into two damage level and to let things start healing and and get back to normal like once they go in there they're going to be able to see a little bit more anyway right. um but it's going to be basically two procedures one to get sutured down and get the ligaments fixed and then the next one to probably go in there and do any other reconstruction that they need need to do and then basically they're going to tell them at that point 
you're not weight bearing and you're going to be off your feet for a couple months. Right. I mean, I just look at that in general for anybody. That's a long rehab process. Sure. I mean, that's, that's two months of just not even working. Just sitting on your ass doing. Yeah. yeah. Then the other thing that came out quite quickly and seemed like a bit of a red flag is they, they very quickly confirmed that there was meniscus damage as well, mm -hmm. which is explain why that's bad. So your meniscus is like the cup that sits on the top of your knee and then it basically takes that pressure whenever you pivot and twist. So now you're not only rehabbing the stabilizers, okay, within the knee, but then you're rehabbing the support, which is taking the pressure and the load off the knee. It's like the, the box spring to a cushion in a mattress, right? That wears down, eventually you need to replace it. Well, if you have that on top of everything, it's just more recovery, more swelling in the knee, just more to worry about. Um, you wanted to talk about this crazy spate of hamstring injuries that we seem yeah. to be having. What, what the hell is going on with everybody pulling the hammy? I, I mean, this year, I feel like it's more than most. It's kind of funny. I looked at why this is happening. The NFL is already ahead of the game. They just put a $4 million grant into hamstring injury research because they're like, what's going on? Right. Um, what you tend to see is there's a trend between like those first four weeks where there's a huge spike in hamstring injuries. Then that drops down. And then oddly enough, it's at the end of the season, there's another big spike. Probably you can just say that's because teams that are going for the playoffs or need to make a push, they're going to put, put guys in even there if they're questionable. Mm. And then obviously the first four weeks, it's like, hey, we haven't played a full game all off season, so let's get after it. And some guys injure it like that. But, I mean, I'm looking around the league, and I'm seeing so many people with hamstring injuries. And it's even after last week, I mean, I, I put a list down, and I was just like, Oh my gosh, these are these are significant names. These aren't even just like right. special team players. I mean, we're like Aaron Jones, Pacheco, uh, Kendra Miller, Devontae Smith, Judy Watson. I mean, all of these guys that usually end up being skilled players. So you look at like a wide receiver or defensive back. And the reason that's significant is because those are the players that are required to recruit their hamstring at maximal velocity. So studies show that 80 to 100% of a full sprint makes a huge difference in how much you're using your max, max um, hamstring mm. strength. Well, the only positions that are really doing that are yeah. DBs and wide receivers. So these guys are injuring them, going full strength, full speed, and now they have a recovery coming from that. It's just you're going to see that spike even next week. I guarantee we're going to see a few more hamstrings. And then hopefully by week four, they kind of – come back down is this i mean this term has become loaded with the nba these days but is this a load management issue i mean i feel like soft tissue injuries generally of which hamstrings you know are a, a subcategory i feel like those have died off in other sports where they've been using you know player tracking and and the the gps monitoring and all that kind of stuff like mm -hmm. the the whatever those things are the catapult vests yeah. right that, that create all this data like, I think rugby and soccer, uh, two other sports that use those things, have seen the frequency of those things die off massively since that started to happen, which suggests that you can see that kind of thing coming, right? You can mm -hmm. manage a player and say, uh-oh, this guy's headed towards a soft tissue injury. Let's dial it back. Let's not do this. And yet, I mean, the NFL have that data and ignoring it and going, no, we need, him. We need one more go route out of you. I don't care. Put the hammy at risk. Yeah. Go. Head deep, right? Like, or what's happening? How come they're not able to head it off the way other sports seem to be able to? So, one, short season. So the significance of not having a player for a couple games is a lot. Two is the demands of football. You think about a football play averaging like three seconds or whatever. You're doing sudden stop to go. Right. And, I mean, we're like talking about cuts, breaks, and you're – on full speed so the likelihood of that happening really increases in football just because of the sport itself and then the other thing I, th I think that is really difficult is it's a violent sport too and a hamstring tweak for some of these guys they might not even recognize like that it's that significant until they really go to stride out and I mean we've talked about this before like whether it's like a hamstring or a groin like you don't really know until you test it yeah and then boom you're on a nine route and you're like that hurt and then you're done. 
So I do think that is also like just the demand of the sport that creates this um, disadvantage for these guys with hamstring issues. So I hate hamstring injuries so much. <laughs> All right, Joe Burrow. Yeah. Um, obviously, the saga with Burrow, he he'd already had something wrong with that calf because it was a sleeve on it, tweaked it right at the start of training camp, sat out the entirety of training camp preseason, ready to go by week one, and then last week he aggravates it again. Mm -hmm. So now we're in this world where nobody knows if he's playing this week. Um, the Patriots signed Will Greer off Cincinnati's uh, <laughs> team, so they lost a quarterback that could potentially go if Burrow isn't going to play. But uh, number one, I guess, how bad is this? Like, what is the what needs to happen? And is this because I've seen it essentially suggested that he has, he's probably going to play, and that just means he can't move effectively. Right. Uh, that like is this now on him to avoid making it worse by having the sort of self discipline to basically stay planted in the pocket and not do anything on that calf? Because that sounds very difficult to do. Yeah, and um, you can't tell a, a quarterback in a competitive situation, like, stay in the pocket, just get hit if you guys have right. an opportunity. Right, like you're go. now a sitting duck. You're, you're <laughs> yeah. an immobile target. You can't get out of trouble because yeah. you, you'll make your calf worse. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> on my soapbox, just a little bit about this situation. One, when we heard about his injury and it was reported as like a grade one calf strain, it wasn't. Not if they held him out that long and not if it's still lingering. So there's an issue in itself. Two, of all the research out there, nothing says that if you have like a grade two or grade three ham or um, calf strain that sitting out one week is going to do anything. Right. I really don't think it's going to make <coughs> any difference. That's the thing. So it's either he plays this week and just tries to get through it or he's out an extended period of time for this to heal. And so the way I look at it is you have one of two options. You have Zach Taylor sitting there saying, we need to win and can't go 0-3. And we're going to put our quarterback out there right. and cross our fingers. Or he's going to say, let's hope that Browning comes in right, and carries the load and, and gets a W. But I'm not going to lie. At the beginning of the season, they may have looked at it and said, well, the Rams aren't really yeah. the team we're going to worry about now. Now. Yeah, yeah. now they look great. So they could easily start 0-3. So they're in a tough predicament. I mean, they have to sit there and say, do we risk our, our franchise quarterback's calf? And not to mention that there's a 14 to 16% chance that there is a re-aggravation of this now just because he's dealing with an injury. Or you say, hey, we're just going to sit him. And I'm not going to lie, it's not sit him for a week. That's not going to do anything. Like, we're talking about sitting him for multiple weeks and just making sure this thing completely heals, and then you might be out of playoff contention. Yeah, so if that's, like, the alternative, right, The or I guess – if you weren't a football player, the advice would be sit your ass down for a month, right? This is how long it's going right. to take. Now, but, but because he's a quarterback and the Bengals are 0-2 and they need him on the field, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to send him out there and say, we, everyone knows you're dealing with this, you know, make the best of it, good luck, right? But what are the implications in terms of if it's, if it's going to take theoretically a month's worth of rest to heal and instead... Instead of a month of healing, he's going to be using it every single week, even if he doesn't make it worse, right? Even if he doesn't go out and aggravate it and, like, now it's completely wrecked and he's shut down and done. Surely that means it's not healing. Like, if every single week you're going out there and using it, at least to the point of it's not healing during that process, whether or not it's being made worse, how long, I mean, does this just link, is this now, Joe Burrow is now hampered for the rest of the season, or... Is your body somehow able to adapt and overcome and, like, it will heal? It's just going to take three months instead of two months or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you welcome his healing into the offseason. It's right now it's going to be maintenance. So hopefully it doesn't get worse. Probably not going to get a ton But back. theoretically, like, if they put him out there this week because they need Joe Burrow and he needs to be playing, otherwise the Bengals season is done, like, this is something – this isn't going away this year. This nope. is something that's going to be with him for this season. I do not see it going away because his rehab is going to be intermittent. It's going to be right. five days. And then, one, that's going to sting for the, the Bengals when they're trying to – manage a quarterback's load during practice and prepping for a team and then say, well, we don't want him on there to re-aggravate it. And then you send him out there on Sunday and just cross your fingers. 
it's it's a sticky situation, but it's, there is probably going to be minimal healing unless they said we're holding him out for a sustained period. It's just going to be right. maintenance, and you don't want anything, and not to mention not even the calf, but he has a higher likelihood of Achilles issues, hamstring issues. So he really is going to be flirting that line every week he goes out there. But I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm the Bengals. I can't. It, it's too late now. I mean, I just – I think they botched it. I think that they should have rested him and just not even had him go in one week one or two if he was still dealing with it. So, because he was, from practice footage and all those kinds of things, he was like running a long time before week one. Like mm-hmm. they, He looked like he was putting load through that calf without a sleeve, without anything on it, like no signs of injury for quite an extended period before they ended up putting him out there week one. It felt sort of like... We don't need him before week one, so mm-hmm. we're not even going to think about putting him in any kind of stressful situation before that. Right. Like, is there a chance that this just, it actually looked like it was healed, and then it re-aggravated for some whatever reason? Like, there was no sign that this was, they didn't rush him back effectively. They just put him out there. They thought he was good, and it turns out he wasn't. That's probably it. It's, it's that they, they rested him as long as they could, right? You, I mean, week one is week one. They're not moving that, that deadline. Right. So they rested him and hope that all the rehab and everything got to a point where he was good to go. I mean, the, re- the weird thing is, too, I don't know if you saw any footage of it, but they said he injured, re-injured his calf towards the end of mm. week two. I don't know where that happened. Right. Like, I, they, they said it was towards the end of the game, and he was scrambling with the ball. But I didn't see him, like, pull up. I didn't see any of that, which is a little bit of um, concerning for me because it makes you think that, well, did he just have that that he was dealing with all game? Right. And then it kind of just got pretty painful towards the end of the game. Or even just... Yeah, you get those weird, like, this is, I hate soft tissue injuries suck because there's sometimes where it just, like, it just tweaks. You mm-hmm. just feel it again. Yeah. And it's not, it hasn't gone yet. Yeah. Like, it's not gone like it did the first time, but you just felt it. And yeah. now you're like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Like, this, this, now I know it's not right, but I don't know how much I can push it. Right. Like, that, that sort of feels like what he, what he had when he pulled up. Right. It's well, like, he just felt it again. And absolutely. now it's like, uh-oh. So, you, if you put yourself in the shoes of Zach Taylor, would you... Would you put Joe Burrow out there, given the implications of going possibly 0-3, 0-4? Or do you think that this is my franchise quarterback, this is the guy that we just paid the biggest contract in history, and you hold him out? Yeah, I mean, even just from a selfish point of view, from Zach Taylor's perspective, it would be more – the thing that would stop me playing him, I think, is it's not going to heal. Like, that's my issue mm-hmm. is, yeah, I might win this game and go 1-2, and two, but – if he's going to be hampered Joe Burrow for the next 12 weeks, that's not any good to me. Like, I yeah. need him at some point. He needs to be 100%. Like, you have to ask yourself, even if you get to the playoffs and blah, blah, blah like, can, can Joe Burrow operating effectively without a calf win you a Super Bowl? I would suggest the answer to that is no. Yeah. Like, or at least the chances of that are no. Now, you might be sacrificing the chance of ever getting there, like, even having the shot, right? But... At least if you somehow make the playoffs with Jake Browning steering the ship for a month, you know, go 500 and then maybe Burrow wins out and then you get, like, at least theoretically he's 100% there and you can, that guy can win a Super Bowl. But even if that would be my, that would be my cost-benefit analysis if I'm Zach Taylor. I'm like, okay, both options stink. But on the one hand, there's a chance, right? If I can somehow get to the playoffs and Joe Burrow is healthy, we can win. Mm Mm-hmm. Even if I get to the playoffs, if Joe Burrow is operating on one leg, we probably can't win. Yeah. That would be my, my analysis, I think. Yeah, and like I mentioned with, with some of the stats, it, it's not guaranteed that he's going to re-injure it. Right. But it's probably guaranteed that he's not going to heal he, while he's doing it. Like, not, that's the like, bigger it's problem. It's not going to be 100%. And this is his plant leg. And right. we talked about that with Aaron Rodgers last week. It's your plant leg. It's your back leg. It's your driving leg. So every time he throws that ball, he's stressing that calf. So. That's the thing. Like, it's, there's no guarantee that even if he stays disciplined and doesn't scramble, like, do anything crazy, like, simply the act of being quarterback in the pocket is going to aggravate that calf yep. to some degree. Like, yeah, uh, doesn't feel like a good option. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to hit before we uh, say goodbye for the week? Yeah, I kind of wanted just to touch base on a couple things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Travis Kelsey came back from yep. his quad injury. Um, I don't know how you really felt about it. I thought that he looked – 
slower. I didn't yeah. think that he looked as mobile, but I think you could see that not just in the tape, but some of the stats bore that out as well. Like he he got targeted quite a lot, but the contested catch rate was way up. Like mm -hmm. he didn't have the separation that Travis Kelsey usually has when he's running routes. Um, but they got the play they needed out of him, right? Like that one sort of ad lib. Sandlot play where he's able to find the space in the end zone yeah. that, that, that Patrick Mahomes is looking for. That's what Kelsey does, yeah. right? So he's he's probably still coming back, um, still going to be dealing with a little bit of that rehab. And I, I bet you in this week, like you're probably just going to see him get back to more normal and more normal. Kind of like Mark Andrews, you know, he injured his quad. He's going to come back. It's just that's a big muscle that you used to drive with. So those guys are you're going to see week after week probably just get more full speed, get more separation, everything like that. Um, you know, David Montgomery's quad is a little bit different situation given the fact that like we it was more distal meaning towards the knee uh we think it's going to be multiple weeks that they're just going to shut him down right so that's a little bit different and then the other one i just thought was kind of funny that i wanted to go in on is saquon barkley yeah. i mean history of ankle issues right and i laugh because um i mean adam Schefter was a great reporter but he's he came out and said this is an ordinary ankle sprain mm -hmm. and i sat there and i literally <coughs> i had to google i'm like I had never heard of an ordinary ankle right. sprain, so I looked it up, and I'm like, that's not a thing. Probably he was referring to, like, a low ankle yeah, sprain. Yeah, I think the point was as distinct from a high ankle, but which it, it ended up being. It definitely right. was a high ankle. If When I went back and watched that replay, I was like, this is either a medial ankle or high ankle. There's no way this is a low ankle. Came back out and said, yes, it, you know, confirmed. The tough thing is he has a 26% chance of re-injuring that ankle after a high ankle sprain. So watch out for Saquon Barkley when he comes back. You know, if he's not looking 100%, if he's not like explosive, if his agility's a little bit down, I'm a little bit more concerned about his re-injury rate with that. So uh, I think that, yeah, he's gotta be held out. We've seen it before with his ankles. I mean, they're like toothpicks. So we just gotta make sure that he comes back 100% that he's not trying to force it. I, uh, I made this comment to Steve last night. I'm curious about your take, not or any extended deep dive, but just surface level. Did you see Evan Neal injure himself last night? Mm -hmm. So it was on the interception return. He just rolled an ankle, yeah. right? The way everyone, every single one of us has rolled an ankle at some point right. in their life. I was curious how much of a difference it makes. Like, when I roll an ankle, there's 175 pounds going through that ankle. When Evan Neal rolls an ankle, there's 350 pounds going right. through that ankle. How much does that make a difference to the damage that that can do? Oh, huge difference. I mean, weight in general, adds pressure to knees, pressure to joints, pressures to back. So that's definitely a huge difference. Now, the other thing is that's such a big boy, like the momentum right. going into that is way more than, like you and I could like sprint and stop and cut and maybe roll our ankle and that would probably equal him like some Yeah, I, the worst ankle injury I ever had was like coming down from leaping up in the air yeah. and I landed on it and rolled it and it, it wrecked. Yeah. Like it did way more damage than a normal ankle roll, but that's basically what he did. Plus, you know, an order of magnitude of weight. Yeah. So it's like a, I imagine that hurt a bunch of bricks just falling <laughs> around and toppling over. But yeah, that's, I mean, it does make a difference. And, um, also think about his, his, ligaments are stronger yeah so right. to get it to roll is a lot more force than what would be you or i right so. all right that's our uh, our boo-boo breakdown yeah thank Hat you tip to tyler um we'll be back on monday myself and steve who i believe will be back in the studio on monday so thank you all for listening to the week of the pff nfl podcast thanks